Hey, welcome to Monday Night School. Monday, Mun Night. Heck, nobody says Mun Night. It's Monday for 12 hours of the day, and it's Mun Night <laughs> for the next 12. Best joke I've ever made. Mun Night. Sun Night. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to start off with a quote here by Neville Goddard. And it's, faith is loyalty to unseen reality. Again, faith is loyalty to unseen reality. And I can't imagine a better explanation of what faith means to me personally. Because people hear faith and they assume that it is this very strict definition that refers to a very specific God or a very specific spiritual force. And I think it can be specific. It can include all of that, and it does. But by its very nature, faith is not a strict definition. However, that Neville Goddard quote, if, if I was ever to give a definition of what faith means, I would quote him as I'm doing now, which is, faith is loyalty to unseen reality. There is just a natural... To me, that is the least audacious thing you could say, the least arrogant thing you could ever say about our experience, about the life that we all live. Not the lives plural, but the life that we all live. Because this whole thing is life. And faith is understanding that we don't know and can't know directly, necessarily, what all is there, just because we only see a certain part of that. And what's funny about that is, I was remi- I, I'm, a fam- I'm familiar with Neville Goddard, not deeply familiar, but he's somebody that I've read a little bit about and heard about from people who have studied him. I've listened to lectures uh, about Neville Goddard. Uh, but I saw that quote from a woman. She posted it. It's, it's an elderly woman who was friends with my mom only in recent years. Her name is Louise. And, you know, I never knew her. I've, I still to this day have never met this woman, Louise. But she's one of the the more special people that I've come into contact with since my mom's passing. She reached out to me online because she had become friends with my mom, and she said they would have deep discussions. And this woman, she's just she's just got this sense to her. Like I said, I've never met her in person, but our communications, she just she gets it, and she would never say that she gets it. <laughs> and it's funny because I've I just feel like my people are senior citizen women, and of course not all of them. But I've, there's, there's just this special feeling I've had, and it's been, you know, in the last 10 years I've felt this way, but it's gotten even more so the last few years, where I feel like there's just a certain type of older woman who I just get along with really well. I feel like they've just gotten to a place where they, they non-audaciously get it. And what that is, I don't know. It's, I mean, maybe it, it, it's exactly what I've been saying since the start of this episode. It just seems like they understand there is an unseen reality that they can't totally know, but they have some sort of faith in it. And with this woman in particular, it's 
very there's a very cool side of this where this woman, like I said, she she was older than my mom, so I I want to say she's probably at least in her late seventies, if not maybe eighties. I'm not sure exactly. I didn't ask her, but she her father was the the first person to settle in this part of town, this part of Olympia. And there's a lake near my house, very close to my house, and it turns out that her dad, when he settled in this area, he named that lake after her, after this woman, Louise, that I've been talking to. And so it was called Lake Louise, and her family helped expand the lake. And since then, for whatever reason, the city has decided to call it Grass Lake. It's like here it had this beautiful name, named after one of this area's first settlers' daughters, this part of town, rather. I don't know if you call him a settler. He moved to this area, and it was largely undeveloped. Um, but, uh, you know, he named it after his daughter, and it's very poetic. Lake Louise, and maps show that. You know, this was actually the name of the lake, you know, as, as much as you can actually name something. You know, we all know names are fleeting. But still, it's like this was the name of the lake. But it's funny the city changed it to Grass Lake. Lake Louise, just too beautiful of a name for this beautiful lake. Let's call it Grass Lake. Not, you know, nothing against grass. Grass is beautiful, too. But it's just kind of funny the city changed that. And that's a funny thing, too, because right now that's a big conversation. It always is. The changing of names. You know, colonists, even just the, the more benevolent settlers have a ten- in, in a given place. Let's just use America as an example. People came here. They settled in a certain area. And even if there were native names for things, even if the Native Americans had their own names, the settlers had to make it their own. Even the benevolent settlers, they came up with their own names for things. And of course, there are not so benevolent settlers, colonists, who also you know, forcibly changed things and said, this is mine, and I'm going to call it a name that, I, that, that resonates with me. And what better name than my name? Or the name of someone I know, you know. So, you know, that happened, of course, but all of it just shows this attachment to names. And, and of course, names are important. It's no secret that I'm obsessed with names. So it's not that I don't think names are important. But we are very attached to them, and, and we I think we assign a little too much importance on them sometimes. And right now what we're seeing is, okay... You know, people came to the U.S. and they took land and they named things after themselves or things that were important to them. And then now we're seeing where the current, you know, social cause is saying, well, we got to rename them. We got to take those names away. And so there's, there's this constant game and it goes on all the time. You know, it goes on just throughout human history of just, you know, oh, we're going to name it the name we like or well, that name isn't okay because of what those people did, so we've got to name it something new, and, and eventually it will be called something else, and it never really ends. So long story short, I'm not upset that you know the city now calls it Grass Lake opposed to Lake Louise, but it's pretty incredible that there's this lake that I've been going to for the last 16 years that is very near and dear to me. In terms of actual proximity, it's very near to me, and it's definitely dear to me. And so to meet the lady who this lake was named after is pretty incredible. And to realize that she, you know, is this sort of enlightened uh, senior citizen woman, you know, woman. Here, my voice is going. But uh, 
it's pretty incredible. And to talk to her about my mom a little bit since my mom's passing and to hear her perception of my mom, which is very close to mine. For somebody who didn't know my mom for a very long time, it's pretty incredible to get this total stranger's view. And isn't that sort of faith in the unseen reality, too? Here's, here's this woman I've never met, and an important person to me died, and yet this woman is able to give her own insight that's valuable. But yet it's not something I can see. I don't even, I've never even met this woman. Never even heard her voice. So that to me is a form of the unseen reality too. Uh, and anyway, like uh, just to finish the lake story, uh, you know, I, I didn't know this at the time, but, you know, a while back, you know, I haven't, I'm saving my mom's ashes for maybe a larger family get together where we can uh, put her ashes in. Puget Sound or something like that, but there was a, a special day a while back where I did sprinkle some of my mom's ashes in certain places around Olympia, and one of them was in Lake Louise, because that's very near to the house. It was a special place when my mom moved here. It it was just the right thing to do. It was, there was no no mathematics involved. Just I just knew that a little bit of my mom's ashes needed to go in Lake Louise, without even realizing that that was named that lake was named after her friend who had this connection to her. And so I let that woman know. You know, I, I told that woman we were talking about my mom, and I told her, you know, you know, I sprinkled some of my mom's ashes in your lake, and that to me was just when I realized that connection, and I was able to tell that to the lady whose father named that lake after her, that was a, a powerful moment for me. But casual, too. This stuff is very casual to me. You know, there's not a lot of... You know, when I talk about this stuff, there's not a lot of ceremony to it. To me, this is just... This is sort of just reality as I see it. Things like that exist. Connections like that exist. Things play out that way. It's kind of like just the idea of faith, where people want to get very ceremonial about what faith is, and to me there is nothing more mundane and casual than faith, because it's a part of just your simple waking life, but that alone isn't very casual and mundane. So there, you know, there is sort of a, there's sort of a contradiction there too, where it's, on one hand, it is this grandiose, just, you know, just expansive thing that we can barely comprehend, and it does fill us with these just impressive feelings. But on the other hand, it's also the smallest, most mundane thing. It is brushing your teeth. I mean, the act of brushing your teeth can even be an act of faith. Sort of like, if I do this, my teeth won't fall out. And I have faith in this process. So you can have faith even in chores. You can have Faith is really something that you can, dare I say, lubricate everything you do with. But, uh, but so anyway, this woman posted that quote from Neville Goddard, you know, faith and unseen reality, uh, faith is loyalty to unseen reality. And just the fact that I've had this connection to this lady that my mom connects to her as well. And then there's this lake and ashes and it's just, it's all the best things. <laughs> that's, that's how I feel. Long story short, that's just all the best things to me, all the best things. Um, but uh, I've, I felt the last couple of weeks, I've felt kind of uh, 
foggy. I felt a little bit, uh, I don't want to say like I'm slipping, but I feel like I, yeah, I feel like I haven't quite had the clarity of mind that I strive for. And part of that I think is because I was just, I've been paying attention to every little thing and I'm, I'm just very aware of the tension and not even in these social and political causes on both sides, but just, it's, it's just everywhere in people right now. And it's already there too, but it's been exacerbated by, you know, these, these larger ideas and forces going on and, you know, it's kind of an example, too. Of It plays out on the micro and the macro, on the grandiose level, as well as the mundane. You know, there's people who are very passionately arguing, and there's, there's a very passionate conflict going, going on surrounding very important things. Humanity, well-being of people, you know, death politics, which are important, you know, they are, you know, they get twisted up and weird, but, you know, at the end of the day, politics do have importance. We've never escaped them. We're not going to be escaping them in the near future, and that itself is just proof that they are a part of this thing, and if they're a part of this thing, they're important. But, you know, so on one hand, you have people who are very passionate about these big things, but then you see where that passion is also playing out in people's smaller interactions with each other. And, you know, at the start of quarantine, I mentioned how, you know, we can't afford to have our limited interactions with people be nasty. And I did an episode around that time about the guy who got mad at me in line at the grocery store because I had too many items. I, I had a few too many items in the express lane. And he just wouldn't let it go. And he was scared. He was scared of dying in that moment. He thought because I had a few extra yogurts and there were going to be a few more seconds of him waiting in line while the coronavi was just swirling all around him, he felt that, oh, oh my God, this guy is, I'm going to die because this guy bought 25 items instead of 20. And I didn't let it get to me, even though I ranted a little bit about it, I didn't let it get to me because I was like, I can't afford for probably one of the only human interactions I'll have for the next two weeks in person. I can't afford for that to corrupt me. And that stays, that stands for right now, you know, and, and I've seen where it's not just people who disagree with each other about these larger causes who are at each other's throats. But there's just little things. I mean, uh, a week ago, I was walking around 11 o'clock at night, and a car drove by me, and they were kind of weaving. You know, and the bars are open here. I don't, I don't know what was going on. I, you know, I don't, I don't know what was going on. But anyway, they, they were weaving, and as they drove by, and the car was, it had a bunch of people in it too. And as they drove by, a hand came out of the back seat window and they just held up a middle finger at me for just as long as I could see them. It wasn't just a quick middle finger. And I'm just walking. I'm truly minding my own business around the corner from my house. And they just held this, this solid, it was a solid middle finger the entire time. Like way, like 
as long as I could see them drive by, and it's a long straight road, I could see that middle finger <laughs> aimed at me, and I was just like, man, I didn't like it, but I found the humor in it too. And you know, you know, it, there would have been a point in time where I would have, I would have been much more affected by that, where I would have let that get to me, and it, it kind of did, you know, because like I said, it's like. You know, here's just one of our limited human interactions. And I know that here we are, you know, it's four months after quarantine, but we're seeing where the coronavirus hasn't gone away. People are continuing to spread it. And I'm still living the exact same way I was at the start of March. I'm still living under the exact same circumstances because I never got too far with the whole quarantine thing. Like I never, I didn't wash my clothes the second that I come in the house from walking down the street. I didn't wash every single surface. When all this stuff started, I started to hear all that stuff, and it's like, scrub your vegetables from the store with soap and water. And, you know, probably not a bad idea if you're scared, but to alleviate your fear, if nothing else, and anxiety. But, you know, for me, I was like, that kind of stuff isn't going to be sustainable. I'm going to be smart. I'm going to wear a mask when I go to the store. I'm not going to get in someone else's space. But whatever I'm doing right now has to be sustainable, is, was my approach. I need to be able to do, I need to be safe, but I need to be safe in a sustainable way, not in a way where I'm just like, you know, I was talking to my friend the other night, and he was saying how his roommate, she was one of these people who just freaked out about, you know, coronavirus a few months ago, and she was scrubbing every single surface and, and just losing herself, watching the news all the time. But he was saying how recently, even though he lives in Florida, even though it's like their cases are spiking there, he was saying how she's still scared and stuff, but how she's all of that. She didn't maintain a discipline around it. It wasn't sustainable how she's taking all of these risks now, even though she's still afraid. She never developed a discipline is how I see it around how to deal with this thing. And so it, I think that's an important approach to anything, but it was something that I was very conscious of myself when all this started, where I was like, yeah, I'm scared too. And I, I think I might've had Corona, like a lot of people think they did. Uh, you know, my lung is fucked up. So, you know, this isn't a total joke to me, but I can joke about non-jokes just like I can joke about jokes. If there's one quote that anybody remembers that I said, how about that one? I can joke about non-jokes, but I can also joke about jokes. But, you know, even if even though my lung is fucked up, and it might be from Corona, uh, I can even joke about that. But anyway, so I just knew, though, either way that, you know, I needed to have a sustainable approach. And so I'm still living the exact same way I was then. And as a result, I don't see a lot of people. For better and worse, certainly for both, you know, it's it's better and worse, I think, that I don't see a lot of people. But, you know, just the, a limited interaction, you know, most cars don't stick their hands out the window to wave at me. Nobody does. So, you know, one of the only human beings that I interacted with probably for that week was a middle finger just shooting out the window. And I'm just, I found the humor in it, but it was also like, man... It still sucks. It still sucks that that whatever's going on with that person is is going to spread. They're going to flip someone else off too. The next person they see might get the finger. Who knows what that person's like at home right now? They might be drunk. They might be something else. But just the fact that during this time, it's spilling out in the form of a random middle finger. You know, you, that's just 
that's not isolated to that one little hand in that one little moment. And if our limited interactions with people are going to be like that, it is not good. It is not good at all. Uh, and this kind of ties into that as well with this, you know, you think about the internet, and I talk about the internet sometimes in, you know, I talk about it as the the collective consciousness that we willingly participate in, but it does, it's the closest thing that we've experienced yet to a, a sort of collective consciousness that we can interact with. Not to say that books and all these other you know, this other technology that predates the internet and these different mediums of expression. Not that those aren't a part of the collective consciousness, too, but the internet is the most immediate and visual way that we've had yet to interact with it. And, you know, with that in mind, it's like, that's a lot of people's experience right now, is the internet. Social media fear, social media anger, and it's, once again, both the big and the small, both the grandiose and the mundane, where people are sniping at each other for everything right now. They're destroying each other. And if, if you're not seeing this, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, but it's there. And it's, it's normally there. But it's, it's especially there right now, given everything that has led to this moment in the last four months. And I had taken a break from this organized crime mafia discussion group. It's a forum that's been around in many different incarnations. In the la- I've been a part of it for 16 years, and there have been several different arc- incarnations with basically the same group of people. And it's a combination of researchers, of just random guys, some guys from mafia neighborhoods who just, like, see these guys at bars. It's And there's been liars, but... Eventually, things become clear. Eventually, you figure out who has something to offer and who doesn't. And the same goes for researchers. There are researchers who, for whatever reason, feel the need to lie, exaggerate, or they're just poor at researching. Um, but uh, and through that, you know, I, I've met friends. I have, uh, you know, the friend I was talking about a minute ago. You know, he's a uh, he grew up in Italy, and we talk on the phone. You know, every week. You know, maybe a couple times a week, and uh, I, I'm helping him with his book a little bit, kind of basically consulting you know he's running ideas by me and if I come across things that can contribute to his book I send them to him and we discuss them and there's a couple other guys like that that I I've collaborated with I would like to eventually do my own projects but you know just I I do a lot of writing and research and note-taking but I just haven't found I haven't found the right vein to really just go all in on so right, I, I feel like I'm just kind of exploring different things, and I'm I'm thoroughly exploring them. But I don't I don't know what I want to do myself. But I do enjoy these friends that I've met. And again, it's that sort of unseen reality where these are friends of mine. These are people that I've been in touch with for many years. Uh, and so, you know, in the, in one case, I we speak on the phone about this stuff at length. Um, but uh, recently, I helped a guy with his article. There's a guy Ed who runs a, an article on a site called Rat Trap, where he, he re, he's revealed that there were many more members of the mafia who informed to the FBI much earlier than we previously knew. We had this idea that, you know, the idea of a mafia member cooperating against his own organization is a relatively new thing, but it turns out it's been going on at the highest levels for decades, and 
so I, I helped my friend with an article that he wrote for that. And so I, I, I enjoy that. I enjoy just kind of collaborating and shooting the shit with the few people in this world who actually care about this obscure subject. Because it goes deep. It goes well beyond the pop culture and the sort of, I guess what I would call the pop culture mythology of the mafia and really getting into the subculture and the sociological roots of this thing, the genealogy even. It goes very deep, and I would love to get into it deeper right now, but I'll just leave it at that. But but anyway, so I've been a part of this, and you know, it's been a long time since I feel like I've had somebody who's just an antagonist toward me. Not counting the random middle finger of the guy who drove by, not counting the guy at the grocery store who was scared to death that he was going to get coronavirus because I bought five too many yogurts. Not counting people like that. It's been a very long time since I've had someone in my personal life. I actually can't even think of it. I can't even think of a time in the last 10, 15 years where I've felt like there's somebody in my personal life who is straight up antagonizing me. Yeah, I've had falling fallings out with people. I've had fights with people, usually friends. But it's been a long time since I remember somebody who's just deliberately trying to antagonize me. And so I had taken a, a, like about a month off from looking at this mafia discussion board. And I'm, an, I'm normally a very active participant. And it's a whole other side of my personality that nobody knows. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's a weird, highly nuanced subject that I've been into since I was 18 and I've just dug in deeper and deeper and I it, it just for whatever reason it's like it's almost like selective autism or something like the way that autistic kids get about trains for whatever reason I'm that way about the mafia and uh, I just can't really shake the interest I'm always fascinated by it I you know I'll, I'll rehash things over and over and you know like any research you get breakthroughs where you'll find a lead you'll find a connection that you didn't know existed but and then you also see things suddenly from a different point of view. The, the interesting thing about studying a secret society, something that's very shadowy, is both law enforcement as well as researchers are always a little bit behind the game. It doesn't matter how exposed this thing gets. By its very nature, this secret society that isn't much of a secret society anymore, this unseen reality, it always manages to stay just one step ahead of the game. So we're never going to know everything. And that's true for history, especially history, where there were fewer sources, where you know there was a point in time where law enforcement didn't even know what they were dealing with. They thought they were dealing with Italian street gangs, and it turned out it was something much more complicated and well-organized, even from its earliest days in the U.S. Um, but... You know, so we're always kind of a step behind. We, it, you kind of have to have this faith in the unseen reality, not to get too cheesy, to even study this subject, because the absence of evidence is not the evidence. Of, an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. That's an important thing to understand in research. And just because you don't have certain information doesn't mean that you can draw a conclusion from the absence of that information. But some people like to fill in the holes with guesses. And there's something in our nature that doesn't like to admit when we are guessing or we are drawing conclusions that we can't logically make. And as part of this discussion group, there are some people who have done a lot of work 
and they've provided really good information, but they have a tendency to draw certain conclusions and make certain narratives that I don't necessarily follow. And there's a certain standard, I feel like, that needs to be followed with these things. And I'm not a jerk about it, but, you know, I do, I will speak my mind. And this all sounds very silly, I'm sure, where it's like, just like these these mafia research nerds. And, and But anyway, so there's this guy who's developed just, he's become an antagonist toward me. And we had a little, like, argument a few months ago, and then we settled it and we we're getting along but I had taken a month off from this place, and then I went back, and this guy just, within like a day of me just having, you know, making points in good faith, this guy just snapped, and he, it's just, it's hilarious, because the guy is just out to get me, and it's been so long since I've felt that. It's been, you know, not including middle fingers and grocery store outrage. It's been a while since I've just felt anybody in my own life or even in this internet world, even in this other dimension. It's been a while since like someone's just straight up been out to get me. And it doesn't bug me, but you know, it is it makes me think and it's a good exercise. I guess the reason I'm talking about it is because it is a good exercise and it's also a reminder that you know, you can't afford for your limited interactions both in person and in this this uh, digital world that we've depended on even more lately. Because it's not just that we can't be around people as much, or we're not supposed to be. I know some people are spending a lot of time with people now. I know some people are breaking quarantine. I know different parts of the country, including this one, are in phases where more businesses are open, where the rules have loosened up a little bit. But for the most part, people are not... They still can't do what they did, and a lot of people are still living shut-in lives. And so people have depended on this digital world for connection because it's it and it shows you how much we need connection. It's it's you know cuz people they didn't think nobody has in through all of this. I mean maybe somebody, but through all of this nobody has thought, "Okay, you know, I can't go see people. I can't go to bars. I can't have big parties. I can't even have just social get-togethers in the same way that I did before." I have to have some reservation at the very least, but there's a lot of people who just aren't doing it. And, you know, with that in mind, though, it's like it's people aren't saying, okay, well, I can't connect with people in person, so I'm just, I'm going to enjoy the solitude. I'm going to basically be a monk. No, people are going to go, I need to delve even deeper into social media. I need to, I need to text even more. So people have really launched into that. And that, of course, with people's natural states of mind, but also just with everything going on, with all of the, the tense you know, issues, the resentment, people's own internal problems, delving deeper into social media just, you know, it compounds that. And I'm against phone shaming. I'm against social media shaming. To me, that stuff is easy come, easy go. There's people who are like, you just need to unplug. You need to unplug. Hey, you need to unplug. And to me, it's like unplugging. That's that's almost resist. It goes back to resist not evil, where it's like, if you feel the need to forcibly unplug, you probably need to do more than just that. Once again, it's like, what's sustainable? It's like talking about the lady who was just freaking out over coronavirus 
a few months ago, and now she's still freaking out about it, but her safety precautions have loosened because what she was doing wasn't sustainable. I feel like it's the same thing with social media, where, you know, if you if you just get, like, all in on social media and it's affecting you, it's affecting your, your mind, which in turn affects every part of your life, and you have to unplug... And it's this sort of, it's, it's like binge drinking or something where it's like you go all in and you just overload and shock your system and then you have to stop for a little while, but then you do it again. And it's not sustainable. It's the same thing with social media. And social media is easy come, easy go, where if you, if you find that it's easy to just log into Twitter and look at a bunch of stuff that's going to piss you off, or if you if you think that it's easy to just click that button on your phone and look at Facebook or Instagram, knowing that you might one way or another get sucked in in a way that you feel that you know intuitively isn't healthy, I don't think the answer is just to completely unplug. I mean, it's one thing if you just you get rid of it entirely and you try to live that pseudo-Ted Kaczynski life of not having a social media account. That's one thing, you know, and I've talked enough about how nobody can truly do that in our modern world, few people at least. I mean, even even these primitive tribes who still exist around the world still get pictures taken of them, you know? They still end up on YouTube when some documentarian swings by in a boat or whatever it is. Uh, so nobody can really escape the eye of technology, um, but as I, you know, I've talked enough about that. But, you know, if you find that it's very easy to look at your social media account, especially if you get emotional, especially if you have opinions, remember that it's with the same ease that you can access that, that you can step away. It's just as easy to come as it is, e- as it is easy to go. And so if you find yourself in that situation where it's like, when we have dinner, you're going to put your phone in the phone drawer. Or let's, when you have dinner with your friends, you're going to stack all your phones in the middle of the table so none of you look at them. It's like, why not just keep it in your pocket and don't look at it? And if you do, just catch yourself. Making some big performance out of not checking your phone is way worse to me than just checking your phone. Not that you should just check your phone all the time either. It's the middle path. It's, it's the Buddhism of phones. It's the Buddhism of social media is realizing, okay, you know, I don't need to put the phone in the phone drawer and lock it in order to talk to somebody. In order to have dinner with my friends and be present, I don't have to stack my phone in the middle of the t- our, our phones like a Jenga game in the middle of the table. You know, you don't need to do that, and in, in some ways that's worse. It's just remember, easy come, easy go with this stuff. But but anyway, so people are, have been very attached to this stuff because they need to be connected to each other. And they're not able to, even if they willingly, even if somebody was willingly shut in before quarantine, even if they were just somebody who plays video games and gets takeout food and, and doesn't really go to parties when they're invited the mental shift of knowing that you're not supposed to or even can't do that now changes the way that you feel about doing those things. So even if you're doing the same exact thing you did before, oh, I just like to stay home with my dog and cat, and I, oh, people, I don't, I don't, I don't even know what to say to people anymore. I'm a modern millennial man. I'm a modern millennial girl man. 
I don't know, whatever it is, whatever it is people have become. Uh, but, uh, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's it, there's this shift in the way that you feel about the situation where it's like, it's almost like, oh, you already did this thing where you stayed inside all the time, but somebody put a lock on the door and now you feel differently about this thing that you willingly did before. And as a result, people, you know, they're already on social media all the time, but then they've gotten even deeper into it. And I heard an idea recently, because I am seeing the issues, you know, as much as I am, like I said, I am against phone shaming, I am against social media shaming, because I think that there's a balance that can be had. I think that you can do something far more sustainable than just immersing yourself in it, unplugging, immersing yourself in it, unplugging. I think you can just have a, a healthy approach and realize this thing is a part of our reality and our world and your life, and you can look at it and you can not look at it, whatever. And whatever works for you. If plugging in and plugging out, you know, if this, if this hot and cold feast or famine approach to these things is what works for you, as I always say, if something works for you, nobody else can tell you otherwise. You can preach what you need, and that's all you need. But the truth is that people are often insecure about their approach to things, and they're constantly looking for somebody else's approval or advice. And, of course, that's why they often go on social media to begin with. They're looking for something. And and I think the reason why people experience issues with social media is because they're looking for something and they don't always find it. And they're resentful of what other people express. They, Like I said, it's a, it's a form of the collective consciousness. And when you read what someone else says, you almost feel like somebody is forcing that on you. When you're voluntarily looking at it, when you're voluntarily reading it. I mean, I hadn't, I, I spent the entire weekend unintentionally unplugged. Because I was fighting with people on a fucking mafia message board. <laughs> no, the fighting was was very a very small part of that. But I hadn't been to this mafia discussion group in a while, and there was a lot to catch up on. So I didn't look at social media all weekend, really. But today, I just I scrolled through Facebook, and I saw that wonderful quote from Mrs. Louise of of Lake Louise fame, you know, about Neville Goddard faith is loyalty loyalty to the unseen reality. So I saw that and I was like, thank God that that entered my consciousness today. What a wonderful quote. But then I saw other things where people are like, you know, masks this, mask that, Trump, blah, blah, blah. And I just, I see that stuff and I go, I'll see something and I can just, I intuitively know that if I read it, it's going to bring me down a notch. And so I just say, not going to read that. It's sort of like, you know, in meditation, teaching yourself to kind of like let a, let a thought just stop at the roots. You don't really let a thought grow. It, it, you can't stop a thought from coming necessarily, but you don't let that thought grow beyond its roots. It's kind of the same thing if you're going to use the internet or social media where your intuition will kick in, <laughs> you know, right away. And it, and it feels like a silly feels like a silly way of thinking about intuition to say like, oh, you're scrolling through social media social media, and uh, you see a a comment that you know is going to piss you off, bring you down, just bore you, and you don't actually even have to read, maybe you have to read like a first two words, but you can almost just look at it, and regardless of the words that are there, you just know, you just know that it's not something you need to read, 
And I, I think you should read things that you don't necessarily agree with or like, because you can learn a lot and grow a lot from that, and I'm all about that. But there are some things where you just know, right away, you just know, oh, this isn't, oh, this meme. I don't need to read the content of this screen capture of a Twitter post. And I think that's maybe one of the worst things on there, <laughs> is like this thing that's this developed where like so many people I know, especially on the left, like their entire world now is like posting screen captures of sassy Twitter statements from people they don't know on Facebook. And I'm just like, and, and every time I'm just like, oh, but, uh, but I can just see that. And I'm like, oh, I don't need to absorb that. Maybe that's all it is. You, you see things and you're like, I don't need to absorb that. And so that's a good skill to develop if you're going to use these things. And it's not just the, the social media. It's not just the social media. It's also reading anything. It's interacting with people. It's that middle finger that, flew, that, you know, was held out the window for like two minutes at me as the car weaved its way up the street. You know, it's saying, oh, I see that, but I don't need to absorb that. I see you, but I'm not absorbing you. You know, that, that middle finger, it's not actually going to penetrate my, my eyeball. I don't like it. You know, I don't I don't like somebody giving me the finger, but I'm not going to let it penetrate my eyeball. But you can really learn to do that with just about anything where it's like, I'm not going to I'm not going to let that, you know, get to me. And, you know, I, was, I mentioned a minute ago, I've, I've got I've ended up with this antagonist on this, you know, mafia research group. And, uh, you know, this guy, he just, you know, he I don't want to talk too much about him because I, I don't actually dislike him. You know, yeah, like yesterday or a couple of days ago when this guy first just started going at me, like getting personal, getting very, and he doesn't know like who I am, because like, this place, it's semi-anonymous. Some people know who each other are, some people don't, but it's semi-anonymous, but it was like, he was he was doing his best to get personal, and he was going through like everything I had ever said on this place to try to find things to to throw at me as as little invisible javelins. And, you know, I found the humor in it. And, and like I said, I, don't, I, don't, I, I didn't even let this make me hate the guy. But I could feel the, you know, you can feel the roots. You can be like, oh, I want to I wanna put this guy in his place. But, uh, you know, there's no need to. There's no need to. Was the guy, is the guy kind of a punk? Is he kind of a punk? Yeah, sure. But, you know, I have a lot of good interactions with the people on there, too. I have a lot of good interactions with the people in my life, too. I see a lot of good things from people. And, you know, we're kind of addicted. We can easily become addicted, I should say, to absorbing only the negative. And the positive or neutral things have a tendency to bounce off of us. Like, you know, I keep bringing up this damn middle finger, this floating middle finger. This giant hand floated down the street, and it wasn't attached to anything, and it was just flipping me off. People feel that way. <laughs> people feel that way people walk down the street and things are totally neutral and fine but somebody they look at someone's face and they think that person hates me that person who doesn't know me hates me that person who doesn't know me hates me and they project it's this projection and that might as well be somebody walking down the street and they see this invis this invisible middle finger and they just think the world's out to get me everybody hates me strangers hate me people feel that way 
And they in turn start hating other people. They inst- that leads to people being assholes. And that's faith. You know, the unseen reality, to go back to the Neville Goddard quote, the unseen reality can be something horrible too. Because there's so much of it. For me, when I think of my own faith, you know, my own loyalty to the unseen reality, I laugh. And I'm astonished and I'm in awe of it. But there was a point in my life, you know, and and it's not gone completely, but there was a point in my life where it it definitely leaned more into, oh, all that stuff I can't see is something horrible. It's the negative thoughts people are having. It's the dirty looks. It's the floating, you know, disembodied middle finger. And that was no way to live. But, you know, it's easy to, to have faith where your faith is in this horrible unseen reality and you assume the worst. And the last thing I'll say about this guy on this discussion group is he's done a lot of research into the Chicago mafia family. And it's a very there's there's a lot of it's a controversial subject because there hasn't been a lot of concrete information from people who are members of that mafia group and accurate mafia research depends almost entirely on inside sources because it is a secret society. So when you have a group like that, that has had some inside sources, but there's some conflicting views and there's a lot open for interpretation. It's very easy to draw conclusions from the absence of evidence. And this guy, he just became convinced that I'm out to like ruin his credibility. And he actually said, I can feel your hidden... He's from a European country, but he said, I can feel your hidden agenda. And I'm just in love with that quote. I can feel your hidden agenda. (laughs) It's like an erection or something. I, I can feel... I can feel your hidden agenda. I don't know if there's some like English as a second language thing there. I mean, his English is pretty good, but... I just, that quote, I can feel your hidden, I have a hidden agenda to ruin this guy's credibility because I have a slightly different opinion on some highly interpretive information. But that's that's our lives in a nutshell. I know this is really nerdy and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that I'm talking about this or to not admit, admit it, to just be talking about this. But it's also something where I'm like, that is just so much in a nutshell. There's this highly interpretive reality where we really don't know very much for sure, even about ourselves, let alone other things, especially shadowy things, especially things that everybody has always, you know, had differences in opinion about, and, you know, that, that just life itself. But, uh, you know, it's it's just uh, the paranoia that people have the, to think, like, Hidden agendas. We think everybody does. I mean, when you when you think that somebody gives you a dirty look walking down the street. I mean, I have resting dick face. There was that whole joke a few years ago about resting bitch face. Well, my my version of that. I made this joke back then, but it's. I realized it was true. I was like, I have resting dick face, and that means that I kind of my brow is kind of naturally heavy, so it kind of looks like I'm. You know, I just have a heavy brow. I got a heavy brow. And it, it makes me look, and I don't just smile for the sake of smiling. Maybe I should. Maybe I should smile with my eyes more. Maybe I should make more of an effort. But uh, 
you know, for whatever reason, you know, I was born with this mug. I was born this way, to quote Lady Google. But that's made, it's impacted people before. People I know and people I don't know where they think that I'm scowling at them when I'm really not. But people, that happens to people all the time. And if they have some natural insecurity, like if somebody's a woman and they see a guy scowl at them, they might think, oh, he's scowling at me because I'm a woman. Or if I'm walking down the street and, you know, a woman scowls at me, you know, or just a woman just doesn't look happy and looks at me, I might think, oh, she's scowling at me because I'm a, I'm a disgusting man. Scowling. Look at her. She's scowling at me because I'm a disgusting man. You know, it's just, it's easy to think that way when you, when you get twisted up. Uh, and so, yeah, we... We just we we see other people as enemies, or we think that they've decided we are an enemy, and it could be something as simple as the look on someone's face, somebody that you've never talked to, that you will never see again. You see them for a fleeting moment, and it fuels it fuels some sort of paranoid, self-victimizing fantasy. And I think that's playing out on a large scale right now. Not to say people aren't victimized, not to say there isn't reason to be paranoid sometimes vigilant, hyper-vigilant at the very least, but, you know, we we tend to see hidden agendas. We tend to get very conspiracy-oriented when we have an absence of evidence. And uh, this it's something... It, it's, sort of, it's a faith in an unseen reality, but it's assuming the worst possible manifestation of reality. It's assuming that reality is going to manifest in the worst possible way as a result of this unseen force that dictates that reality. But I think you can have faith in, not blind positivity, but faith in just the the miracle of it all. That you have consciousness, that you are aware, that you can see things, think about things, talk about things, you know, and, and I think when you come from that point of view, it's very difficult to see hidden agendas unless there actually is some sort of concrete evidence. And it goes back to another one of my favorite quotes where, you know, history is more the product of chaos than conspiracy. And my own addition to that is that human beings want to convince each other that we ourselves are far more conspiratorial than we are. When reality, we're just improving, we're improvising in reaction to chaos. But because we are so insecure, we want to convince people that, oh, I, I meant to do that. When I slipped and fell on the ice, I meant to do it. You know, it's like we, we're so scared of judgment and we're so scared to admit that we don't know both what we're doing, and we, we're scared to admit that we don't necessarily have all the answers. It's something I've found as a researcher. As a researcher of secret societies, there are so many cases where we cannot definitively say that something is a fact, or we have conflicting facts. We have statements from reliable witnesses who aren't lying, and we can tell they're not lying, you know, but they have a different interpretation. And what do we do with that? It's just like finding the middle path. It's all part of the conversation. You shouldn't rule. If something is conflicting, don't throw it out completely. But you can include both ideas in the conversation and say, maybe it's somewhere in between, or maybe it's something else, but these people see it this way. 
And that's politics, too. Oh, Republicans are wrong. Liberals are... The leftists are right. Oh, the far left is crazy. The far right is... They know. Everything they say is true. And, you know, you don't have to be a centrist. You don't have to be a moderate. But you can say, hey, maybe both of these people are responding to a truth. Does that mean they're responding the right way? Maybe sometimes, in my opinion, this is totally how I feel, sometimes conservatives are responding more appropriately to the truth than leftists. And sometimes leftists are responding more appropriately to the truth than conservatives. To think that one point of view at one point in history has it all right, well, that's wrong. And this goes for every aspect of your life, too. But to get back just one more time to the social media thing, you know, obviously it's on people's minds and people are thinking very critically about it. They have for years, but I'm seeing some very interesting insight into social media right now. People are very aware of what it is doing right now, the role that it is playing right now. And there's an unseen reality to that because there's this idea that there's these algorithms that are this, they're this code that is supposed to make a unique experience for us, but it is so prone to manipulation, even your own manipulation. And you, you've got to kind of break your own al- algorithm. Like if, if an algorithm is correctly always telling you exactly the thing that you think you want to watch after the thing you just watched— Try breaking it a little bit. Your algorithm should surprise you. If you if you spend a lot of time on YouTube and it's always recommending you videos that you agree with or that you know you're going to like, try breaking it a little bit. Because you don't want this AI to accurately predict you all the time. Because it can also easily manipulate you. But algorithms are this sort of boogeyman, too, the way people talk about them. Like, oh, it's the, it's the algorithms. The algorithms, man. And, uh, you know, I think there's truth to that. But, it's, again, it's not the whole truth. They're not purely nefarious. I just think they're prone, like everything, they're prone to manipulation and maybe not even human manipulation. Maybe the algorithm just develops this logic that this is what it's supposed to do and what it's supposed to do might not be entirely good for us. But I, I, I was listening to something. It was a psychologist on a podcast talking about current events. And he said straight up, you know, humanity just, it's going to have to get rid of social media. And, uh, you know, I don't even have an opinion on that statement. Because we're not going to get rid of it. There's not going to be a social media prohibition. Even if the government banned it. Even if they, you know, the only thing that's going to get rid of social media is if we break all the modems. Hey, we got to break all the modems. It's like those old, uh, the video photo and photographs of the police going into, you know, alcohol stills and during prohibition. And they're like breaking like thousands of bottles of alcohol and emptying them out. It's like, imagine seeing this footage of police you know, raiding an office building and they come out with all these modems and they're just smashing them. 
Gonna break all the modems. So, you know, we're not, you know, and then what we're gonna end up with, here's what's, what's gonna happen. If we decide that we're gonna ban social media, there's gonna be digital speakeasies. There's gonna be, you know, there's, there's always gonna be a platform for that. You can't put that back in. That, you know, social media came out of us and we're not going to be able to put it back where it came from. And it's, it is like any, any, and I don't think that's a realistic idea. Nobody is suggesting we actually ban this thing. Because even if the government became fully authoritarian and decided to control everything that happens on social media, they would still keep social media. It would just be highly censored and monitored which it already is. It already is highly censored and monitored by some sort of authoritarian mindset, be it just the CEOs or stockholders of these companies, the users. I mean, the users of social media seem to be the people who get the most authoritarian about it. But either way, we're not getting rid of the platform itself. So, you know, while I understand why, I don't remember who it was, but it was this psychologist who said, you know, if we're going to, like, make it we got to get rid of social media but it's like you know we're we're not gonna have a prohibition we're not gonna have we're not gonna be watching video footage of modems being smashed with hammers by police you know during prohibition there were uh prohibition agents where their entire purpose was raiding stills and busting people for bootlegging we're not gonna have you know modem agents who go around, you know, there's gonna crush the internet. Because inevitably you would have digital speakeasies, and, and trust me, even just saying that, a digital speakeasy, like that idea is so repulsive to me. I, I have to say, you know, like as, as much as I am, I have to have been talking about my interest in organized crime and the mafia, I am not a fan of this like retro speakeasy aesthetic. I am not a fan. <laughs> like, there's a bar here in town that has a, a speakeasy theme. It's an old bank vault. And I, I have nothing against the the business, the establishment itself. I mean, they're just trying to get by. I mean, it's it's so damn hard under the best of times to run a bar or restaurant. But I have to say, it's like, I do not get in on the guys and dolls like pseudo speakeasy like the idea of an actual speakeasy is kind of cool an actual secret you know knock on the door you know the eye slot opens and there's like a goon who's like give me the password you know that, there's something cool about that and that's what obviously inspired these sort of like retro pseudo speakeasies that are around today you know there is something cool about that secret club the secret club where we go drink you know, there's something cool about that idea, obviously, which is why people try to recreate it now or they try to, you know, use that aesthetic. <laughs> but I just don't like it. You know, I do not like it. To me, it might as well be steampunk. To me, it might as well be any of these other things that just make me turn the other way. Um, but I don't have to go there. You know, I don't have to go there. It's, uh, I don't know... I don't, I don't force myself to go there so that I can just feel uncomfortable and hate it. <laughs> but that's another thing that people do, like getting into that idea of people who see what they, they see things that, they, they see conspiracies where they don't exist. 
And I mean, some people do that where they'll go to a place that they know, even if they don't admit it to themselves, they'll go to a place that they know they hate because they want to hate. They want to, they want something to fuel their anger because that makes them feel more alive than simply existing in this wonderful neutrality that also verges into happiness. Uh, so I don't need to go hang out in some fake-ass speakeasy in 2020. Which it turns out, you can't even really have anything in 2020. Not to make one of those jokes that everyone's making, 2020 much? Oh, I'm so sick of this year. I'm so sick of this year. Anybody else sick of 2020? I don't mind 2020. I have my own fears. I have my own anxieties, of course. But I don't mind 2020. I think 2020 is as good of a year as any, and I think it could end up being an, you know, it's already an important year. Nobody can say that it's not important. Like I said a while back, nobody can say that 2020 isn't potent. 2020 is not an impotent year, whether you love it or hate it. And boy, it's a great way to get everybody against you is to say, I love 2020. I love 2020. I just, don't you just love 2020? Don't you just love 2020? You know, why not? Why not love 2020? I think I do. Well, do I, do I like like 2020? I'm in love with 2020. <laughs> I am in love with 2020. And I think that, you know, in don't tell 2020 this, but I think I'm going to love 2021 too. I think, I, 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 hey, I love 2021. We can't both love 2021. No, I think I, I, I love 2020 and I think I'm going to love 2021 too. 2022? Hey, I, I, the future's looking bright to me. Do I love the suffering? Do I love the resentment that people are feeling, that they're expressing? You know, no. But because a guy drove by me and held his middle finger out for no reason, because some guy on the internet has decided that he has, you know, Eric derangement syndrome, does that is that going to ruin this this year for me? No. In fact, I think those things just enhance it. I think seeing that middle finger go by or feeling like someone's hostility toward me in this weird niche online world, I mean, I think that's, that just makes me like this year more. That just gives me more faith. You know, that just, it just reinforces my loyalty to the unseen reality. That Neville Goddard quote is how we started this episode, and it's how we're going to end, too. Faith is loyalty to the unseen reality. Amen, amen, a woman. This land is mine. God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land 
to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free 